Hi, I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the second edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Today, our topic is court technology, lawyers go Hollywood. As all of you are aware, the use of technology in courtrooms has greatly increased in terms of displaying evidence to juries and putting on presentations even in non-jury trials. We're going to cover today a few things about how to be your own movie director in the courtroom. And I think probably one of the primary points has nothing to do with technology. Experienced trial lawyers will always tell you that a trial is about telling a story, or in our analogy, about making a movie. And so it's important for you to recognize that in the final analysis, you want the technology to support your storytelling, but not overwhelm it. I think if you're not careful, you can get too involved in the whistles and bells, the flashy graphics, and the other things, and leave yourself sometimes where the technology may actually stand in the way of what you're trying to communicate. What do you think, Sharon? I think that's the most common danger is that they want the bells and whistles, and they're so excited about the jazzing that they forget the essence of storyboarding, which sometimes is simplicity itself. So the technology has its place, but it shouldn't overpower what you're trying to do. Uh, done well, the director is invisible, and that, of course, is the genius of a Steven Spielberg. You feel the force behind it, but you really are not aware of every move and every decision that he makes because it's the story that compels you. And I think you want to try to do the same thing here with this. You can show so many things. You can show graphics. You can show photos. Timelines are, are so critical, and making them visual is so very important. Audio, video, documents with call-outs. I think that's probably one of the most common usages one sees, and it's just so easy to pull those words out. If you remember, Jim, the, the film The Rainmaker with Matt Damon, did you see that? Uh, no, I can't say that I did. Okay, you're going to have to look it up now because one of the best parts is the use of courtroom technology. And they actually have a scene where a, an insurance uh, agency has written to the insurance claimant whose son is about to die of, of cancer. And the letter says, you are stupid, stupid, stupid. And so they just call those words out, enlarge them, and, and just they're so compelling to the jury. Uh, clearly in Hollywood they were going to get the right verdict, but even outside of Hollywood I think you can get the right verdict and you can use that kind of technology very effectively. There's probably other things you can do. What, what else can you think of, Jim? Well, again, one of the dangers, again, is just being a little bit too fancy. I was uh, watching a PowerPoint presentation the other day, and of course you hear lots of good and bad about PowerPoint, but the lawyer was obviously a beginner with PowerPoint, and so he had selected a different type of effect for every slide to come on. So one would crawl up from the bottom and then one would pinwheel in and whatever. And and I know that by halfway through his presentation, I was the only one in the audience who was more thinking about what's the new effect going to be rather than, than what he was trying to communicate. I do think that you don't have to always go with visual presentations, with computer presentations to get a visual effect. The old-fashioned blow-ups of certain documents or signs or whatever that you can sit in front of the jury for a time are still equally effective. You need to blend these techniques, but I think it'll be almost considered not doing your client justice in a few years to have the deposition presented, for example, in the old style where some young lawyer sits in the witness chair and reads back and forth from the transcript as opposed to having the visual of the witness actually testifying so the jury can see the witness's demeanor and those types of things. You know, one of the best examples of how times have changed 
is the story of Michael Skakel's conviction. And, and if you don't recall that story, Michael Skakel is one of the Kennedy cousins. And in 2002, kind of early in the courtroom tech field, if you will, but in 2002, Michael was convicted of murdering a girl 27 years earlier. The case largely was lacking in real evidence, real forensic evidence, but my golly, it was replete with showmanship. They had charts, they had graphs, they had maps, they had photos, and apparently they had a very, very effective PowerPoint. The most damning evidence in the case were audio tapes of incriminating interviews that Michael Skakel had, which had been taped by an author. And the prosecutors not only played the words out loud, but showed them while the audio was being played. It was truly high drama. And at the end, Skakel's cousin, Robert Kennedy Jr., said, and this is a quote, he said, the PowerPoint display really convicted Michael in the end, close quote. And that's really rather a dramatic statement, don't you think? Oh, I think so, exactly. But jurors still like to be able to make their own opinions. And there's a vast difference in the jurors' mentality from viewing the defendant's demeanor, even while it may be remote on videotape or something like that, as opposed to having it read to you or being presented cold text. Absolutely. And, and let's talk for a second about some of the statistics about how judges and jurors learn and retain. They do disagree, these studies. They're never exact. But most of them agree that in long-term sense, and they call long-term three days, we only retain 10 to 20% of what we hear, but up to 50 to 60% of what we hear and see both. And even the Manual for Complex Litigation says that jurors retain information far better when they both see and hear it. And I think that those stats are, are fairly compelling, even though you can never get the same statistics out of the <laughs> three different surveys, you get three different sets of statistics. But it's certainly quite clear that when you add the component of video, you get a far different result and a far deeper remembrance on the part of judges and juries. Well, it's not just how people retain. People actually learn differently. And some of us are visual learners and some are more auditory learners. There are even a few that are tactile learners who probably get shortchanged in the courtroom. But uh, for, for people who are primarily visual learners, you don't speak to them as well when it's only testimony given. And so the ability to look at things where you can see them as opposed to having a document that you pass down the row in the jury or whatever and everybody t glances at for a second is much more powerful. It truly is. And, you know, one of the challenges I think that the lawyers face today is that particularly with a jury situation, you've got the MTV generation and they're bored if they're not watching all the flashy stuff. And you've got the AARP generation, which is having trouble looking out of their thick lens glasses in the first place. And if you go too fast, you lose them. While you have these balance, this balance, you've got to strike between these two groups. And I think that that's a very difficult kind of balance to strike. But more and more, you're going to be dealing with jurors who, as opposed to, let's just say, some of our generation, Sharon, are used to receiving their material from a screen, whether it's a computer screen, a television screen, or a movie screen, whereas the generation, uh, the greatest generation, shall we say, they got their material information from reading books and newspapers. So we're seeing that change in society, and it's something that we have to speak to as we select more and more of these people in our jury boxes. Oh, good. Does that mean you and I are not the AARP generation, but the MTV generation? I'll uh, be happy to adopt that argument, counsel. <laughs> We're going to need a hell of an order to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Simplifying the complicated is one of the most important things to consider for any trial lawyer. 
and it works the same way with technology as well. Certainly, we've had many cases where by bringing into court the physical pump or the piece of a machinery and equipment, it is very helpful for the jury when people testify about it to actually be able to see it, maybe even take it in the jury room and hold it. But there's so many more aspects to this. Now, you can not only bring in the pump, but even a lawyer who doesn't have the ability to hire expensive expert witnesses or to go into complicated engineering, many times you can just go on the internet and search around and find blow up graphics where you show a pump dissembled and how all the parts go or whatever. It's amazing how many corporations now just put all of that online to help their customers, and yet it can help a trial lawyer involved with the product as well. Yeah, I love that that site, How Stuff Works. Yeah, I was about to say that. How Stuff Works is a really nice site. You know, the problem with becoming an expert in something, if you will, and, and that's what we trial lawyers do is we become experts in things, and then we quickly discard that expertise and move on to something else for the next trial. So a good trial lawyer may be working on medical malpractice one day and a product liability the next day. But as you immerse yourself in it and you spend a lot of time, you start adopting to yourself the shorthand terms and abbreviations and lingo perhaps of the industry, and you sometimes forget the simple explanations that one can give about how things work. There are some other websites along that line. And by the same token, sometimes I use Wikipedia when I'm dealing with a term. I like to go to Wikipedia, even though I wouldn't want to cite it in a brief necessarily or or uh, rely on a, a, a wiki for certain types of things. Wikipedia will give you a good example of common language that is used to explain things to people. So I, I think going to that kind of material and learning about that and remembering at the end, even though you've got a complex set of information and you've learned a lot, you need to simplify it for the jury who's hearing this information for the first time. Good point. Yeah, it's very hard to translate that to a jury which has had no experience with any of these things, which kind of brings us to when do you use this stuff? Do you use a PowerPoint or other program in opening and closing just for exhibits? I've asked a number of judges, and I'll tell you, they don't agree at all. Some of them say you should only use it during the body of the trial. They, their feeling is that the lawyer should do the lawyering in the opening and the closing, and the exhibits and that, that sort of thing in the body, that's where you should use your, your PowerPoint presentation. But I've had other judges say that the most powerful openings or closings were the PowerPoints because they used them to tell a story. That, I think, can be very important. I, I know there was one case uh, during a closing in a murder trial where the attorney used the PowerPoint to say, and he used he did use some of that flashy stuff, but he said the truth is, and then in slow words, you know, Joe Smith is guilty of murder. And then he showed a smiling face of the victim, which morphed into a tombstone for the victim's tombstone. Now, you might say that's kitschy, but apparently it, it, it worked. The jury found it very compelling. So the question is, depending on the trial, depending on the jury, use the right tool at the right time, and, but don't ever let them lose sight of the lawyer. You should always be where they can see you as well as the, the graphic. And in terms of not losing sight of the lawyering, I think there's that old chestnut about, would you rather have an edge on the facts, an edge on the law, or Abraham Lincoln as your lawyer? And, of course, the clear answer is I'll choose door number three. So don't ever let them forget the powerful lawyer that they've got. That's a great point, and we probably ought to move on now and, and examine a few of the tools. This isn't going to be an in-depth training or anything, but at least we can talk about a few of the tools that lawyers might use to give uh, more powerful presentations. And we probably ought to start off talking about trial preparation. Those, are, uh, those tools are uh, among some of the most expensive 
and among some of the most technical in terms of having to have a great deal of training or expertise to use. But yet, if you are processing a case, for example, with electronic evidence or electronic discovery, and you've received 100,000 emails in response to a discovery request, you're going to have to have some of these heavy-duty tools to process the information. The two best-known names in the industry are summation and concordance. And uh, you can Google those terms to find those websites, and we'll try to put those as all the products we talk about in the uh, written materials that we'll post on the web in, in conjunction with this. But these tools allow you to go through and then do searches on the material you receive. They allow you to, to deduplify or, or dedupe, it's called, uh, the evidence you receive. When you receive a bunch of emails from an Outlook PST file, for example, you may have five or six different, maybe eight or ten different versions of the same message. You know, I've got this message in my sent files, you've got it in your inbox, somebody else I copied on it has it in their deleted files, and so this allows you to dedupe these and, and end up with just what you need. And then you can search them, and you can search the different fields and find out, well, if Joe Blow was was blind carbon copying a buddy of his on this inappropriate email sent within the office, perhaps I ought to go look at the email that his buddy is sending as well and see if he's mentioned my client. So I think these kind of tools are certainly a heavy duty. We're going to talk a little bit more about some some simpler tools, but certainly these are two of the gold standards or brand names in the industry. In terms of presentation software, there are basically kind of two different levels. There's the uh, simple, easy level, and there's the more complex level. Obviously, in this realm, you certainly get what you pay for. But with training and, and time invested in learning how to use these products, you can get a great result. If you only have six or eight 10 images that you want to present, most of the heavy-duty tools are overkill. Probably a simple PowerPoint with those 8 or 10 images in it and you understanding what key combinations allow you to jump between the images and not just take them in a linear, typical PowerPoint presentation make a lot of sense. So PowerPoint is something that all attorneys uh, should have a familiarity with. And that's one of the things that kind of strikes me as odd. Of course, I do a lot of presentations, as does Sharon, and PowerPoint is one of our primary tools that we use all the time. And yet there are a whole lot of lawyers that have a little bit of trepidation or just say, I don't know how to use PowerPoint. I'm never going to have the time to do it. And let me assure you that, that PowerPoint is a very easy to pick up tool that you can, it is one of those you can actually go to the local community college or get somebody to train you for a couple hours over lunch and you can have a passing familiarity with it and, and, and start using it in the, in the small cases. Would you probably agree with that, Sharon, or do you have something else about no, PowerPoint? No, I, I agree with you. And it, it does have the lion's share of the market for a reason. It is very intuitive. Probably the initial putting your toe in the water, that's the hard part. So it, I would say take a Saturday afternoon and sit down with a book, and I think we could put some of those book resources, uh, Jim, on our website so that people could go and get those. But it doesn't take more than one of those self-help books and a Saturday afternoon to pretty well get what you can do with PowerPoint. And I know Craig Ball, who, of course, is one of the great maestros of PowerPoint, one of the amazing things he did one year at Tech Show, I don't know if you saw this, Jim, but he did uh, Story of a Life. And basically he was taking this man who had been killed and he was showing everything about the man from early on till his death. And 
I mean, this was not a real story, and I was she crying. She birthday party. Uh, yeah, you know, and I was, cry- I was crying, and so was half the audience. I mean, so skills. Half the audience <laughs> cried for that one, and it was so powerful. I actually asked Craig to show it again at our solo and small firm conference here in Oklahoma, which he came to later that summer. Yeah, and wasn't it a wonderful job? I mean, Craig did a superlative job with that. It was it, so it compelling. It was a superlative job. You know, yeah. Craig even taught me how to take little paragraphs, you know, things that you think you'd have to have expensive software to do, but how to use PowerPoint to take a paragraph and blow it up and have it leap out of the document and lots of other things. It's cool, but, you know, it, it's faster to do that in the trial presentation software. Are we ready to head there? Well, let's talk real quick about a couple of other things. Okay. I wanted to mention that, you know, I'm a word-perfect guy, and so I wanted to mention, give a nod to my friends at Corel that say that their suite also has a presentations program that some people use to great advantage. I've had to uh, bite the bullet and switch over to PowerPoint. But then also the CaseSoft family of products from LexisNexis, they have a program called CaseMap that is kind of light summation and concordance light. They probably wouldn't appreciate me describing it that way. It's a, it's a way to kind of deal with your facts in something that a lawyer can use without a lot of training. It's a great software. You can give it a free trial. But one thing I wanted to mention before we move on to the heavy-duty programs was a program called Time Map from the same company, CaseSoft, now acquired by LexisNexis. If you've ever had to do a timeline in court, this is an incredibly powerful tool. You don't have to buy the whole suite. You can buy it alone. But if you've ever tried to put together a time map, a timeline, or something like that, never do that again without looking at one of the software programs that allows you to accomplish that. So, so what else will we use to present evidence at trial? Well, you know, and I did want to mention, too, you can take time map and you can insert that, you can create your timeline and insert it in PowerPoint, which a lot of people don't realize you can do, but that makes it even simpler. But if you want to move on to the heavy-duty stuff, there are four major programs to look at. The four industry leaders currently are Sanction 2, Trial Director, Trial Pro 2, and Visionary, and we'll try to have links to those on the website if you want to go ahead and, and look those up. Mind you, Jim and I are not experts. We're both litigators who jumped the fence, thank God. <laughs> I still see some of the courtroom action as an expert and consultant, uh, but not that often, and I do have a certification as a trial technology consultant, but I haven't played with a lot of these sophisticated programs terribly much. The one I've probably played with the most is Trial Director, which I thought was incredibly easy to use, but I'm sure the others are too. The call-out, which is doable but a little bit painful in PowerPoint. Call-outs are a snap in Trial Director. And finding the exhibit you want, all of that is very simple, even if you have to take things out of order quickly. You can also circle, enlarge, and highlight on the fly. All of that is tremendously useful when you need to be fast on your feet. So you know, t- take a look at these programs. These are the ones you, you want to use. None of these programs, when you go to court, none of these are light on b- using resources. They're all resource hogs. So you don't want a slouch machine. Generally speaking, you're going to want Windows XP with a ser- Service Pack 2. You're going to want a processor 500 megahertz or higher, probably even more than that. And I, I, although I sometimes see listed 256 megabytes of RAM, I would say 512, not 256. Hard drive, one gig of available disk space at a minimum. And of course, you're going to want to have a 1024 by 768 or higher resolution. These are large files, by the way, these, these presentation files. So if you're going to ship them off to somewhere else, be aware that they need to accept a, a very large file size, or you may need to break it up using something like uh, yousendit.com in order to allow them to receive it. 
certainly, uh, I think that you've got to have, you know, you don't want to skimp on your horsepower with your computer. That's one of the mistakes that I see lawyers making sometimes. They want to try to purchase, you know, the minimal computer or whatever. And if you're going to be a trial lawyer, you want to have way over everything that the, the products say, because uh, I think probably uh, I wouldn't. Maybe lies is too strong a word, but one of the consumer misstatements, I think, is the minimum requirements on a lot of these software yeah, that, programs. Yeah, that's minimum requirements, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> exactly. Most of you will, will at some point either now own or be buying an LCD projector or some other type of projector. I think it's important to recognize that courtrooms present special challenges when you're trying to use a projector. And uh, hopefully you'll have the courtroom of the future where you don't have to deal with this, but we will talk a little bit about how that works. You know, you have to bring your screen, you have to set up your projector, you have to worry about getting it squared up to the screen or using the adjustments where you don't get a, a trapezoid or some other image. But the, the main problem with courtrooms is many of them are very large, and all of them, almost all of them, have a certain amount of ambient light. It's rare that you're going to get the judge to turn off the lights, and nor do you necessarily want that, especially especially if you've, your jurors have had a uh, large lunch before the <laughs> afternoon presentation. Not unless you want snoring as accompaniment as music. <laughs> That's right. But you've got a big place, and that means you have to have the, the screen projected, you know, pretty big size screen, and you've got a lot of ambient light. So there's lots of different projector websites. I've got a few of them that we're going to post on our materials. And you can review these and think about them. When I talk to lawyers, even a lawyer who doesn't work in in very big courtrooms who just wants a projector for uh, going to the Rotary Club or doing even maybe some presentations in, in, in homes and, and small offices. I've seen that before. I tell them that about 2,200 lumens is about the minimum that you'd want to purchase for a projector. Now, you don't want it to become antiquated. And when you do do a big screen and you try to project a big image, you'll find that it just the more lumens you have, the more better it works. And what, what I've read, Jim, in some places is that 3,500 is actually the recommended for courtroom use? I think that could be right. Again, I, I, I uh, haven't really dealt with a lot of the trial lawyers who were buying them just for courtroom use. I was buying them for general purpose use. And of course, we've already established in our first podcast that we're going to be a little bit more tight on our dollars in Oklahoma than you folks over on the <laughs> East Coast. Well, we're, we're, get, we're standing in line now over here on the East Coast, uh, <laughs> since we have all the bucks over here, apparently. Uh, we're standing in line for the digital light processing projectors, which are out now. Um, only differences in the way they generate light inside the projector. They're more expensive, but they're generally considered to be better. And, of course, the latest development, which isn't on the market yet, is liquid crystal on silicon, LCOS. And those are in prototype development, but they'll be out here fast. Well, that all sounds great. I wish I'm looking forward to seeing what the courtroom looks like in just a few years with all of those things. I think we do have to talk a little bit about the challenges of the non-wired courtroom versus the wired courtroom. A non-wired courtroom is the traditional courtroom that all of us that do litigation or have done litigation have practiced in, and it wasn't set up for displays. In fact, uh, documents were always traditionally given to the jury, as I noted, by having them pass them from hand to hand. And it presents a lot of challenges. You know, when you get ready to go into a non-wired courtroom, you should have a traveling kit of many things. Uh, duct tape is one really good example. You want to make sure and have a lot of tape, because if you do run cables across the floor and you're forced to do that, you want them clearly taped down very well 
so that they're not a hazard. You want to bring duplicates of all of your information. In fact, you, if you can bring a duplicate laptop and not just a duplicate of your information on, CV, on DVDs, that would be helpful as well. We'll talk a little bit at the end about uh, some challenges and some horror stories, but uh, we see that a lot. You'll want to make sure and get there uh, early. In fact, if you're going to try to do a trial that's going to relate a lot to and rely a lot on images and, and projections and that type of thing, you definitely want to get to the courtroom a week or so early and, and think about how it's going to work out and look at it. And perhaps, uh, Sharon, I think you've mentioned about making a sketch. Very helpful. Yeah, at least you know where everything is, including the outlets. And, and you can also plot visuals so that you can see where you need to be if the courtroom is not already wired, where you'd like to set up for maximum impact. At ABA Tech Show one year, our, our friend Bruce Olson from Wisconsin did a presentation called Bring Your Own Electricity, and I thought that was a cute title, and, and it kind of brought up that some of these courtrooms don't have adequate wiring, but he said that he was actually aware of a lawyer that the wiring in the courtroom was so bad it wouldn't pr support any of the equipment without tripping the circuit breakers, and they finally gave up and actually rented a generator and put it in the courthouse <laughs> lawn and ran in cables through the windows. <laughs> so that they could have adequate power. Well, I don't know, Jim, out in Oklahoma, you guys might do that, right? <laughs> well, uh, in Oklahoma this summer, we could probably use some uh, uh, water wheels and just generate our electricity from all the rain <laughs> yeah. we've been having. That's, and, and extension cords. Don't forget extension cords. There you go. But what about the wired courtroom, Sharon? What well, does that mean? Well, you know, we have one here in Virginia that's amazing. Uh, it used to be called Courtroom 21, and I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember its new, much less memorable name. But Courtroom 21, is, as it was historically, called us down in Williamsburg, and it includes the, a real wired courtroom, and courtroom 21 is the apex because director Fred Letterer down there gets all these donations from vendors, so he can have every toy in the world and the most current toys in the world. But normally you're going to find all kinds of wiring. A lot of times you have false floors. Sometimes you have wireless technology. The judge has a monitor. Uh, the, juries have mo the jurors have monitors. There's a large screen for projection. There's usually a podium or a cart presentation system with a control panel, a monitor, uh, some kind of annotation device, a document camera, a DVD CD player, a tape player, all these kind of things. So you're really kind of all set in a single place. And never forget the boss key. Do you know the boss key, Jim? The boss key? <laughs> the, yeah, the boss key. The boss key is what the judge has. If, if the judge is not happy, the judge can go ahead and press the boss key and everything goes black. And turn off everything all at once. Uh-huh, and real fast, too. I mean, and, amazing. In fact, I forgot in your list that you added that often these courtrooms come equipped with your very own courtroom technician in addition to the judge, which is nice. Yes, yes. John, my, my partner, John, is here uh, and reminding me that it's the Center for Legal and Court Technology. Thank you, John. I never do remember what these things are called. <laughs> One of the things you need to be aware of, though, if you are going to really get into this as a practice area, you're going to start using these visual images, you've got to go to the courtroom 21, or we'll have the correct link for the new title, uh, and, and look at their website, because a lot of times you may have to make this decision, would it, be, would it make sense in this trial, if I'm going to rely on 60, 160, 460 visual images in this trial, would it make sense to buy six or seven flat screens and see if the judge will let me install them in front of the jury, even though it means I have to give one to opposing counsel as well? So you have to think of those kind of things. 
You certainly do. And, and just want to mention two quick resources that we will have up for you, and that is the Administrative Office of the United States Court has a courtroom technology manual online, and the Federal Judicial Center and the National Institute of Trial Advocacy uh, have published the Effective Use of Courtroom Technology, a Judge's Guide to Pretrial and Trial, which is also available online. Those are two great resources. Well, let's talk about who goes into court with us. Debate I hear sometimes is do you do it yourself or do you have to now hire a full-time tech person or paralegal to sit at the council table with you? And I think that that answer normally depends on the scale of the trial. If you're that person who only has eight images on a PowerPoint, it may be safe to do it yourself. But given the fact that this equipment can malfunction and given the fact that you as the primary trial lawyer, the first chair, need to be paying attention to what's going on. You need to be looking at the jurors' expressions. You need to be paying attention to where things are flowing, listening to what the witness says. I think most of the time you're going to find that you're going to have to train somebody within your office to be your, your second chair, even though this person may not be a, a lawyer at all. And I think that judges are now a lot more prone to let a tech person come to the courtroom or a paralegal and sit at the council table. Where uh, I've been around long enough, I remember that was a horrifying situation. Suggestion a decade or a few decades ago, Sharon. It was, it was. I agree, but I, I also agree with you, Jim. That in some of the cases I've seen, the lawyer has been so hopelessly flustered by the technology that it is just clear that the lawyer needs to focus on the lawyering, and someone else needs to focus on the technology. Uh, we, we could probably move on here to quickly to admissibility. We're not going to talk about that very much, except to say that there are a couple of practical problems with, with some of the technology here and getting it into court, not, not admissible into the court itself, and then admissible as evidence. And the big thing is that you need to notify the, the judge and the other side as soon as possible in advance what you're going to bring in and what you're going to use, and make sure you have approval on both sides, and then also you need to notify security because if you show up without notice, security is going to stop you dead in your tracks uh, for good reasons from, from their point of view. Uh, and then the other part of admissibility is, is there going to be any problem having some of this presentation evidence admitted in court? And the argument generally comes down very simply to the probative value of the evidence versus its potential prejudicial effect. A good case, Jim, to, for people to look at is, is Commonwealth v. Surge, which was decided last year by the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, and we'll stick that link up on the site so that people can take a look at it. Uh, and I think the last subject we want to cover today is what happens when your tech bellies up. And the story I want to tell is from the Eastern District of Virginia. Judge Gerald Bruce Lee, a friend and colleague, has said to me several times that he has he has a system about it. It's called the three strikes and you're out. And the first time the technology goes south, he uh, smiles and takes a little recess. And the second time the technology goes south, he applies his very stern voice and says, we're going to get this fixed, gentlemen, before we come back. And the third time it is three strikes and you're out. And he tells everybody, we're done with technology for the day. Let's move to paper, gentlemen. So, or gentlemen and ladies, as the case may be. So his point is, you know, three times and he's had it. So you still need your paper, you need your phone boards, whatever. So you need to have a backup plan. Uh, also, of course, you need to remember not to panic in front of the jury. 
I, I can recall when I took that trial certification course I mentioned earlier, the uh, Fred Letterer, the director of the then-named Courtroom 21, everything went kablooey in the tech side. It was just unbelievable. Not Fred's fault. It was just one of those things. But he applied such gentle wit, wry humor to the whole thing that it saved the day. And I thought to myself, this is a great object lesson for attorneys, that if you can apply a little humor to the situation, all jurors have been through tech screw-ups, and apply a little humor and you're going to be fine. And now if you have that other person there, they're focused on the disaster while you're focused on making the judge and the jury get through it gracefully, which is great. And that's, that's just a wonderful way uh, in the face of disaster to hopefully seize a victory, a small victory over disaster. In the same way that backup is so important with our office data systems, it's still important to have a backup at trial. You may be intending to have a paperless trial, but I would never tempt fate by going in there without all of my exhibits and whatever printed out on paper should I have to go to the backup plan. Amen, brother. Well, I hope you've enjoyed a little bit of an overview to our listeners of the use of technology in the courtroom. Certainly, we're going to have some resources on the website for you to download, and we think that it's a pretty exciting and novel concept. I do think our primary point is where I'd want to conclude, where I'd want to say it's important to use technology in the courtroom to reach jurors of a certain age to present your case in the most favorable light. But it's also important not to overshadow your story and telling what you want to. But hopefully, you'll be able to go all Hollywood and we'll hear you walk into the courtroom and say, lights, camera, and four dire? I don't know about that, Sharon. <laughs> I'll stick with lights, camera, action, thanks. <laughs> That's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy.